0: Paleo nerds, two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds, cause deep time will blow your mind. Hey Dave, how's it going man? Hey Ray, how are you? I am good, I'm sitting here in lovely Ketchikan, Alaska and you are down in Ojai, California.
1: Ojai, California, town of 8,000 people surrounded by beautiful mountains. It was a foggy morning this morning and I thought, am I in Ketchikan? You know,
0: uh, Ketchikan is very different this summer. There are no cruise ships and I, I just realized something too, I'm going down to the docks Oh, pretty much every day going to walk down
1: there. And they're catching nothing but ratfish off the docks, man. Really? So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Is uh, there more fish and wildlife like around town now that there aren't the huge cruise ships showing up every day?
0: Well, one thing I can say with certainty is that there's a lot more ratfish down there. I've never seen so many ratfish being caught. I think they have been waiting for the cruise ships to go away. So now they're down there. So we might soon be the ratfish capital of the world.
1: Instead of the Puget Sound. Yeah. So what is it, people just fishing for salmon off the docks, that's who's catching it, or, or rockfish, or what?
0: They're going for halibut, basically, and there have been a few halibut that have been caught down there. So yes, but in between, they're catching pretty much nothing but uh, ratfish and the occasional Irish lord, sculpins. Right. Very few rockfish, but uh, a lot of ratfish.
1: Is it true rockfish is only catching release this year?
0: That's right. You cannot retain them at all. That's the demersal species, not the pelagic species, but the ones like red snapper, and quillbacks, uh, the tiger rockfish, the red banded rockfish, all of them go back.
1: Is that Alaska-wide or just southeast Alaska?
0: The entire state.
1: Whoa, from overfishing, from us stupid humans ruining it for everybody.
0: Yes, they're very old fish. They don't go anywhere, and if you just keep catching them, there's not very many left, man.
1: Now, I don't think uh, I like the idea of catch and release because when you catch a fish and you bring it up to the surface and it gasps for breath and you pull the hook out of its mouth, whether or not you put it in a barometric chamber and release it at depth or not, that fish will have gone under shock and will now be the bottom of the food chain. He's going to be disoriented and dizzy. Maybe you're saving a fish, but you're putting him there at the bottom of the food chain where he's not aware and and how can that be good for, for any catch-and-release fish?
0: Well, I would not advise you to try going catch-and-release fishing with rockfish. But the trouble is, if you're going after halibut, you're bound to be catching everything else. And so if you're going to put a hook in the water, something's going to happen. So yeah, no, it's right. insane to be thinking about... Oh no, catching and releasing even the, the ratfish. They go through a lot of pain and all that.
1: But they do that. Yeah. But people have those barrow what do they call the barometric uh, release?
0: Barrow trauma is what they they suffer from.
1: Explain what that is.
0: Well, when you bring up a fish that does not have a, a swim bladder in it, it, the air within its body, and this is the artist explaining this now. To
1: a ventriloquist.
0: Their stomach expands. Their stomach actually expands. It goes out through their mouth. Their eyes pop out. And when you bring these rockfish up, they, you can just tell that they have been traumatized. They have been yeah. barotraumatized by the depth change. And the only yeah. way to really save these these beautiful... Old fish is to get them back down to the depth that you caught them at. When you release them, you have to get them right back down. And magically, it's almost pretty weird. The eyes go back in and everything, and down they go. But
1: I'm saying I'm saying you're not saving them because even though you get them down to depth, they are still traumatized, they are weak, they are not alert, and they, I believe, are subject to being prey much greater than if they hadn't been caught.
0: Yeah, they're definitely more vulnerable, but I think uh, there have been some young ichthyologists that I know that have done the studies on them and the uh, 90%, 90, 95% survival rate. If you get them back down to the bottom, they're still going to have trouble getting back in the groove, but off they go. It's almost magical. It's very cool. And that's that's how fish scientists can save a fish and my band even has a song about rockfish and releasing them and the right thing to do. Oh, that's awesome. But here we are talking about fish when we ought to be getting prehistoric. Is there anything in the news this week, Dave, that's like cool? Uh,
1: yeah, totally. Um,
0: What's the latest in the paleo news, dude?
1: The latest in the paleo news is uh, some scientists uh, using computer modeling and the Remnants of the structure of the Chicxulub crater, which is the one that was created by the meteor, asteroid, six mile wide meteor, asteroid, that hit down in the Yucatan that ended the Cretaceous and killed off pretty much the age of dinosaurs. They figured out by the way the strata has reformed after that impact, the exact, pretty much not the exact, but a 40 to 60 degree angle that this meteor hit at this particular angle, which was really devastating. If the meteor had hit straight in, it would have been less debris, less ash in the atmosphere. But this 40 to 60 degree impact caused the most damage, uh, the most amount of ash and material being reintroduced into the atmosphere, thus creating the conditions for 75% of all life to become extinct.
0: Wow. that's they're able to calculate the this the angle that it hit at, or, or or what about the shape of the asteroid itself?
1: They're assuming the asteroid is is round. No one knows if yeah. it's like uh, that. Unamunamura, Oumuamua, shaped like an irregular cylinder, is the first known interstellar object detected passing through the solar system. Right, right. Using computer modeling, they figured out impact directions: straight up, ninety degrees, forty degrees, sixty degrees. And the way the Earth responds to this thing hitting the planet, a big divot gets formed. Material goes up really high on the side of the impact. It's lower on the tail end of the asteroid side of the impact. And as that material goes up and then settles back down. This is, by the way, in three, 400 seconds. They've, wow. mo- they've modeled this within a few minutes. Wow. And after five minutes, it literally is a mound, but you're able to figure out what happened in this very fluid and, and molten bit of the Earth's crust.
0: I think they are going to get it down to the hour and the and the day that it happened, you know? <laughs> Was this about the most lethal angle it could have been or could have been worse? Yes.
1: No, they said 40 to 60 degree, degrees is... They said 40... They said 40 to 60 degrees is the most lethal angle.
0: So it actually behooves us to be watching out for the next comet that might be coming our way. And we could, like, you know, do in the movie, send up a spaceship or whatever and deflect it just get the angle slightly different and it might save a lot of people.
1: All you need is a can of cheese. You know, cheese in a can? That's the amount of force you need to stick on a, or that asteroid out there, and we'll save the planet with a can of cheese.
0: You're making that up.
1: No. Pulling did, my leg.
0: Is this something that you and Elon Musk have been talking about in the afternoon, or what?
1: After we designed the Powerwall, basically, you're talking about inertia, and you're talking about, for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a massive rocket. A massive rocket with a huge engine on an asteroid will move that asteroid so much quicker and so much faster. But if you have years, you need hardly any energy to move that asteroid, as long as you have years in advance to make sure it goes off its trajectory of a collision course with planet Earth. We can be saved by canned cheese. You had me
0: going there, Dave. I'm so gullible, man.
1: <laughs> Enough of that crap. Who's our next guest, Ray?
0: Our next guest is Amy Atwater. She's at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana. Yay! And she is the Paleontology Collections Manager. She's in charge of all the cool fossils there. That is like, I I think it's got more T-Rexes than any other place on the planet. And she's in charge. And I've known her for about a decade almost. And uh, she's really cool. You'll love her. (laughs) And you know what comes from there, Dave, right? Uh, You know uh, what's out in Bozeman?
1: Fossil fish. No, no, no,
0: Dave. Wrong again, Dave. We're talking about the place where Jack Horner
1: uh, made his career. Oh, you mean blueberry pies?
0: (laughs) No, Dave. This is the Tyrannosaurus Rex capital of the world. I believe they have more T-Rexes in their collection. And Amy is in charge of it. And it's really cool.
1: Wow, wow. Let's call her. What do you think?
0: I think we should.
1: All right. Let's get on it. All right. Hey Dave,
0: meet Amy Atwater. She's the paleontology collections manager at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana. Hey Amy.
2: Hey Ray, how's it going?
0: Good. Hey Amy, I met you like eight years ago, I believe. I was down in uh, Eugene, Oregon. You were an undergraduate student at the time, I believe?
2: I think I was in my junior year at the U of O.
0: Wow. And now you are in charge of one of the coolest fossil collections in the world. How neat is that?
2: It has been a fantastic journey that I feel very fortunate that uh, my life has been able to go this direction. And it's a fantastic position at Museum of the Rockies, getting to look after all of their dinosaurs
1: and everything else. Wow. How many T-Rex teeth have you actually handled in your hands?
2: Dozens. Many dozen. Uh,
1: The serrations and the sharp teeth that bit into creatures that were alive
2: or dead. We see the wear marks on the teeth from where they literally were biting Triceratops. You can feel it. It's a nice wear facet that you get from res- from constant use and chewing. Uh, so it's pretty neat to show that off on tours and let people touch a T-Rex tooth. That definitely changes
0: uh, a lot of people's perspective. Do you have more Tyrannosauruses than anyone else in the world there at your museum?
2: I have been told that we house the largest collection of Tyrannosaurus rex fossils and Triceratops fossils in the entire world. We do not house the largest collection of dinosaurs, that is with a lot of the larger museums, but since Montana has so much of the Hell Creek formation, we get a lot of T. rex and Triceratops in Montana.
1: Give us a little background of what the Hell Creek formation is.
2: Sure. Uh, the Hell Creek Formation is essentially uh, what was around, uh, what was being deposited at the end of the age of dinosaurs. It's our last glimpse into the age of dinosaurs before the catastrophic extinction event that killed all non-avian dinosaurs about sixty-six million years ago. So the Hell Creek Formation uh, is in a lot of Montana and a lot of the Dakotas um, and into parts of Canada as well that preserve that last. Snack snapshot into the age of dinosaurs.
0: I have a question about T-Rex, you know, the king, the tyrant lizard. There was a fellow who worked there at the museum for many years, and uh, he proposed that it was nothing but a scavenger, which upset a lot of people. And I'm wondering, you know, I've always thought of it as a big, uh, nasty predator chasing down its prey, battling. And I'm wondering what your personal opinion is about the king. Was he a scavenger or did he hunt for his own food?
2: I think T-Rex did whatever the heck. T Rex wanted to do. Uh had a lot of that. I think if T Rex saw another a dead animal or a recently killed animal and it was going to chase him off. I think of T Rex very similar to how I think of bald eagles. I hold them in very similar uh regard. And you know, a bald eagle is going to be very opportunistic. They're sometimes eating roadkill and carrion, and sometimes they are actively hunting and going after prey. And it appears because we have some triceratops material and hadrosaur material where there are healed bite marks that T-Rex wasn't just scavenging it was occasionally at least going after living animals and we have evidence of that in their in their injuries that have preserved
1: but bite marks from a T-Rex I mean you definitely can say this was a T-Rex bite
2: you only have the teeth in that size range in the hell creek from something the size of t-rex so if you have um, measurements on the injury or if you have an embedded tooth like we have a duckbill dinosaur that's got an embedded t-rex tooth in its nasal bone and uh you in the face yeah in the face on the nose
1: (laughs) oh wait did it survive that or did it oh so it had the pathology of healing
2: It had healed and then something, you know, maybe it didn't make it that much longer, uh, but it did heal enough to preserve and embed that tooth. And we see that in some triceratops specimens as well, where there's signs of healing. So it did not kill the dinosaur. So it wasn't just being scavenged. Though I'm sure T-Rex was also being a scavenger when it suited it
1: as well. This is what I love about paleontology is imagining that day when that happened and then seeing the fossil evidence of of a day, of an afternoon, or a morning, you could say this happened to this creature, to this organism, and here is the evidence. That is so so exciting. Did
0: the T Rex break its tooth off in the snout of the uh, duckbill dinosaur, or is there just a divot there?
2: Uh, no, the tooth is still preserved in the it's in the skull. In,
0: it's whoa. stuck in there.
2: You can just see a teeny bit of it. And Scott Williams, one of my coworkers at Museum of the Rockies, really wants us to. We have a good connection with the local hospital. They let us CT scan things in their CT scanner and he really wants to take it in and see if you can, what you can see about if there, how much healing occurred and, uh, and try to figure out more about that, that tooth. Um, I'm a mammal paleontologist by trade, so it always is weird for me that dinosaurs were able to shed their teeth so easily. Uh, But T-Rex would have been able, I mean, probably would have shed teeth with every meal, uh, or at least fairly often, T-Rex is estimated to have gone through all of its teeth in about a two-year
0: period to cycle through all of those. Wow. Much like a shark in a way, huh? Yeah. Yes.
1: Wow. Very cool. Very similar to that. How many sets of teeth would a T-Rex go through in what what would it be a 30 40 50 year lifespan do you have any idea oh
2: my goodness that is a fantastic question that I leave up to the folks doing T-Rex histology and slicing up T-Rex bones. So Holly Woodward Ballard out of Oklahoma State University came out with a paper right on New Year's Day this year, looking at the growth trajectory in Tyrannosaurus rex individuals and trying to understand in number of years how old these organisms would have been uh, and what stage uh, and and then be able to ask questions like how many sets of teeth would they have gone through? in that time but if we're saying every two years and a T rex is probably going to be in the 20 to 30 year range so yeah you're looking at many 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 times over that these teeth are going to be growing
0: wow i'm just picturing this duck-billed dinosaur walking around with this big old tooth hanging out of its snout that's so cool (laughs) i want to draw that with crayons but (laughs) it's the old school
2: septum piercing
0: Oh, (laughs) it's sort of gangster, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, look at me. I, I got street cred, you know. Hey, Amy. You have done so many incredible things, and you're you're a pretty young person for having this really cool job. Thank you. What's your background? Where where do you come from? Where
2: do I come from? Well, yeah. I'm just a lobe fin fish, aren't I? <laughs> I
0: I taught you well. You yes. did. Yes, that's definitely your line. <laughs>
2: Uh, well, I do have a very long history with paleontology, uh, mostly because of growing up in Oregon and having parents that were able to send me to summer science camps out in the John Day Fossil Beds National Monument in eastern Oregon. So I there's pictures of me in the John Day Fossil Beds as like a five year old next to a picture of an oreodont. Wow, so wow. It, it's been in the it's been happening for a very long time. Oreodonts have had that effect on me for many many years.
1: Can you give us a, a real quick example and describe what an oreodont is? They're from the Miocene and they're very common. So,
2: Oh man, oreodonts are very, very common and they range more than just the Miocene. They're around from about 40 million years ago until about 5 million years ago. And I call oreodonts, I got this from my best friend Megan, uh, she refers to them as sheep, pig,
1: camel mammals.
2: Uh, we uh, find them in
1: large Say groups. That. Say that without moving your lips. Sheet, pig, kennel, nannle. <laughs> Sheet, pig, cannel nannle. I did it. Chuck, Chuck is in the it. house. Yeah. Chuck my puppet.
2: That's, that's impressive.
1: I really didn't move my lips.
2: <sighs> Uh, and uh, The logic behind that is we oftentimes find, um, Auridons, so they would have been hooved mammals there. artiodactyls, which makes them even-toed ungulates, even-toed hooved creatures walking around on two toes, um, as opposed to a horse or a rhino that's on like three or one. And
1: an antelope has two toes, right? Correct. Pronghorn?
2: Yes. Also an artiodactyl and a pretty cool one at that. Uh, definitely crazy cool
0: headgear. So, Amy, you did a high school science fair project on uh, your Oreo dump discovery. Did you find one and describe one, or
2: no? So, uh, when I was in high school, one of the camps that was offered uh, through um, OMSI, the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, out in the John Day fossil beds, was a three-week-long paleontology research team, and I joined that, and we got to go. On a bunch of different digs, and we also did a lot of scientific reading and writing and that's when I had my first experience writing about the climate change that's recorded within the rocks in the John Day Basin and how we can tell the story of um,
1: landscape evolution there through the fossils. In case you're wondering, the concept of landscape evolution is that land undergoes changes with time, it evolves into new forms, just as animals do. To paraphrase my favorite geology writer John McPhee, he said, If geologic time could somehow be seen in the perspective of human time, well, sea levels would be rising and falling hundreds of feet. Ice would come pouring over continents and as quickly go away. Yucatans and Floridas would be under the sun one moment and underwater the next. Oceans would swing open like doors. Mountains would grow like clouds and come down like melting ice cream. Continents would crawl like amoeba. Rivers would arrive and disappear like rain streaks down an umbrella. Lakes would go away like puddles after rain. And volcanoes would light the earth as if it were a garden full of fireflies. And at the end of the program, humans show up, their ticket in their hand, and almost at once conceive of private property, dimension stone, and life insurance.
2: And so um, my instructor for that camp was a guy named David Levering. He now is the director of the Sternberg Museum Science Camps. And he took me under his wing when he was a student at University of Oregon and helped me set up a climate change project using oreodonts as a proxy. And we looked, we measured a bunch of upper molars in oreodonts and looked and see if there was a body size change that correlated with a time at temporal and climatic um, some sort of factor having to do with that. It was not conclusive. The, uh, the conclusion (laughs) was no conclusion, mostly because oridont taxonomy is a mess.
1: When you say climate change, you talking about the, uh, the, the repeating periods of glaciation?
2: Uh, yes, I mean, definitely. I mean, for the early stages of what we have recorded in the Cenozoic rocks of the John Day fossil beds, we have a very, um, Warm climate it probably would have been a ice-free world that we see in the Eocene time period. We would have had PETA. Ah, uh,
1: PETA. What is it called? PETM. Uh,
2: the PETM. The PETM. Yeah, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, followed by the early Eocene Climatic Optimum. ECO, <laughs> and then there's also a MICO, a Middle Eocene. Yeah, there's a few of those. And so essentially we can look at not only the plants, but also see how we're, we change from a really tropical, wet, lush environment to more of an open, um, seasonal, browsy, woodlands, grasslands kind of environment. And then we see more modern, the spread of just grasslands and the, um, and the appearance of like the modern horse or, more derived animals like that.
0: Are there any Oreodont ancestors or related creatures at all on the planet anymore? When do they disappear?
2: Uh, Oreodonts go extinct about 5 million years ago, maybe because of... Uh, uh, competition with uh, other ungulates. I'm not quite sure. They did diversify into so many different ecological environments it would be hard to understand how they could all be affected. But at 5 million years ago is when we do see really dramatic um, changes in glaciation and we do see we start to go into our our glacial cycling and we did have maybe periods of more cold and maybe Auriodons couldn't put up with that quite so much. Or maybe they were like, we've done well for so long. It's our time.
1: (laughs) just gave (laughs) up.
0: Just gave up. Yeah. So I love Oreodonts. I can't help. every Whenever I draw an Oreodont, I have to put an Oreo cookie there. <laughs> you know, Oreo tooth. I know that you then took uh, a hard left turn into fossil primates. Did you not? Somewhere along your career path?
2: Yeah, I uh gave up on Oriodonts after that high school project. Uh, I let Megan carry the torch on that one happily. Oh. I was like, she came in all excited for graduate school with Oriodonts and I went, good luck. <laughs> Have fun. Um I really realized that uh one of the things that had always uh also interested me when I was in middle Can I try to say it?
1: Omami Omamiids. Omamiids. I did some research. Is <laughs> like, it oh, omame like, it? Oh mommy. But no, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. How do you say? Hold on, it? hold on. Let me try again. Um, oh, oh, That's oh, 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 that's getting closer.
0: And then I know you're gonna say my favorite one, ekamoye shashua.
1: Well, wait. So so correct me, please.
2: Uh, I pronounce I pronounce it omomiyed. Um, Or Omomyoid, if you talk to some folks in certain parts of the field. But Omomyoids are a group of extinct primates that would have been fairly closely related to Tarsiers, the primates we have today in Southeast Asia with the crazy bug eyes that look like they drank way too
1: much caffeine. They look like hooves from Whovilles on the Grinch. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Don't they? I can see that. I like
0: or, that. Or, or Yoda with bigger eyes.
1: Yes, Omomyids are you.
2: Bigger eyes and maybe not quite as weird ears, but perhaps. Um, so Omomyids are closely related to Tarsiers, but they're completely extinct now. And uh, I started to study them at the end of my undergraduate career and then per- continued to pursue it as a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, where I described and named three new genera and three new species of Omamiads from San Diego. Wow.
0: Let's talk about primates in North America. What's the big deal? What's the big deal?
2: They're primates in North America. We don't have any other primates in North America until the Great Biotic Interchange and, of course, humans showing up, which that is also debated about when humans got here um, by many hundreds of years.
1: Okay, wait, the Great Biotic Interchange, is that the Siberian, the Atlantic, and the Pacific land bridges where everything came in and out and in and out?
2: Well, there are many different types of biotic interchanges, and this is the American Biotic Interchange is the one between North and South America. So prior to that, so that happened, oh, actually, off the top of my head, I I think it's somewhere in the three million years ago or so range. And um, that's when we got monkeys back into central um, North America. But prior to that, we did not have any primates in North America, except for these very rare Eocene primates that lived in North America from about 56 million years ago to about 34 million years ago, with one exception, Aguimoe Shashala.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Shashala. <laughs> Let's, I want to learn that one. Say it one more time, would you?
2: First off, I would like to just put a shout out there that I am not an, I do not speak Sioux. So I would always recommend talking to someone who actually has studied the language. Uh, but I have been taught that it is pronounced egmoe Shashala.
1: Which is a Native American Sioux word.
2: It is a Sioux word for little cat face man, because they <laughs> thought that this primate would have looked like a little... Little um I think they saw um I think part of it had to do with circus coming through town with the the monkeys that would sit on the on the carousel things and they thought that this fossil kind of resembled that and they thought those monkeys looked like little cat face men. So wow um, that's I, very th- cool. Th- that is very derived. So someone would need to go look into the specifics of the naming in that. I'm butchering it, but Egimois e Ashela is always a fun one to say.
0: You describe Uh, a number of new genera you said and species you named those things what can you rattle off some of those names for us
2: oh happily so i decided to add to the confusion by naming one equiomachius uh Walshii. The species name is Walshii after Stephen Walsh, who discovered all of these primates before his untimely death. Then that's the smallest one. And then the medium-sized one is called Gunnel Tarsius. And that's named after the late paleontologist Greg Gunnell. And then the biggest one is the one that I had a lot of fun naming, and it is called Brontomomies. And that means... Thunder shoulder mouse. If you, <laughs> if <laughs> you thunder shoulder mouse, it. Thunder, thunder shoulder mouse, and that one would have been probably in between the size of a kitten and a and a cat, and the other ones would have been in the kitten size range of uh, overall size. But
1: what what do you do that you get to name them?
2: I well, I went to the Museum of Natural History in San Diego, and I was looking at. Prior to that, I was looking at, um, this other genus called Omomys carteri. Um, it has two species, Omomys carteri and Omomys loidae. And I was looking at to see if Omomys loidae was really a valid species or if it was really just variation within Omomys carteri. And I went to the San Diego Museum because they claimed to have Omomi's carteri, and I had not looked at it. And when I got there and looked at it, I realized, oh, no, these are not Omomi's carteri. They're also not anything else that I've been looking at at this point. They have distinctively unique characteristics that are um, distinct enough that they are coming out very differently on, a fi- on phylogenetic analyses. They weren't grouping with um, already published genera.
1: A phylogenetic analysis is the way you visually estimate the evolutionary relationships in a branching diagram called a phylogenetic tree, which, at a glance, kind of looks like a sports playoff diagram, but it's all way above my pay grade.
0: What were you looking at? Were they teeth? Were they little skull bits? What were and where were they collected? The the, the specimens in in San Diego.
2: I almost only study teeth and isolated teeth and tiny chunks of jaws uh, with maybe a few inner... Um, I once have held... I've held one Omomayad skull, Runia via It's beautiful. What did she say? And that is the most complete Omomayad I've personally seen. I know that there are a few skeletons known, but most of this material, since we're dealing with very rare animals within their ecosystem, if you think about a Tarsier and its ecosystem today, it makes up a very small percentage of that body biome, and it's also very, very small. And uh, so that already makes them rare. And teeth just happen to be the hardest part of the body. So they naturally are going to preserve in more environments.
1: I've always wondered, how do you describe an animal and know its skeletal dimensions just from a jaw or teeth? I do that with hominids all the time. Yes, But you you would have to have bits and pieces to be able to uh, assemble an entire skeleton and to know what this creature would look like.
2: Yes. And so when my publication came out, and we had a press release article, and my co author had a connection with a local artist who did some reconstruction work, and I always got kind of a kick out of these fully fleshed out animals that we only had isolated teeth of. And what we do in that is we use the comparative method. All right, we're comparing it to um, well-known specimens that it's closely related to, and looking at the dimensions that we see in those skeletons, and then we're looking at their closest living um, descendants, and also maybe animals that are currently living in a niche that would maybe be representative of their niche. And then we use all of those factors to do um, reconstruction. Uh, But it is very tricky to say about you know primates and uh, something being able to jump and swing through the trees you do need more post crania as we call it beyond just the skull and teeth to be able to say more things about locomotion and um, overall behavior
0: you mentioned uh, your uh, your best friend, Megan. Who is Megan?
2: Yes, Megan Weatherall. Uh, she is a paleontologist who studies artiodactyl evolution. Uh, so she studies ungulates and um, all of their really fun variation. She is also uh, my best friend, and the other half of our blog, Mary Anning's Revenge, which we started in 2012 uh, when we were both at the University of Oregon. I was finishing up my undergrad, and she was there as a graduate student starting out her PhD, and we were dealing with the normal things that you deal with in a... Male-dominated field. And uh, having some feels about that. And we got together and decided to start a blog called Mary Anning's Revenge, named after the famous paleontologist Mary Anning, who still to this day does not des- uh, receive the credit she truly deserves
1: uh, for all of her... She did a lot more than sell seashells by the seashore, didn't she? She
2: did. And you know what? I like that connection, but it does tick me off that she's mostly just remembered as a tongue twister. And it ticked Megan off too, and that's what brought us together.
0: Well, it's the tongue twister is a way to get people's attention, you know? Yes. And I do think that the world might soon know more about, I mean, you guys have been doing your part with Mary Annie's Revenge. It is one of the most, it's the, one of the funnest websites and blogs to read, but soon there's going to be a couple of motion pictures, yep. I understand.
1: Rolling sound, quiet. Here we go. And action.
0: Kate Winslet's going to play Mary Anning. Yes. And you you play Mary Anning every now and then, don't you? I
2: do. Megan made me a Mary Anning costume. So I she got me a green dress and a green cape and a big sun bonnet and a red ribbon. And she even got me a black and white dog stuffed animal to represent Mary Anning's dog, Trey, who was with her. It, it was in England. Yes. And what year was that? She was living on the southern coast of England, which is known as the Jurassic Coast. And she was born in 1799. She survived being struck by lightning as a baby. No way. Which is maybe what filled her with some of that greatness. Um, It killed the woman who was holding her. It did not happen to be her mother. Um uh, But that was one of just the beginning crazy parts of Mary Anning's life. And then she um was taught how to collect fossils by her father. Um They collected curios, as they referred to them, to sell to tourists who were traveling to the south coast on vacation. And they were very, very poor. They were also dissenters of the church. And so they had a tough life and they had to literally find fossils to sell them to have food to eat. And when Mary Anning's father died when she was 11 years old, she took on the majority of the fossil hunting business for the family. And that's when she started to make some of her first major discoveries. Her and her brother found the first complete ichthyosaur, and she herself discovered the first plesiosaur ever known. And people didn't even believe her that it was real. They thought it was a hoax, and she had to educate herself, essentially, to convince these uh, individuals, that it was valid and it really did represent that animals went extinct, which before a lot of her work, we still didn't accept that.
1: Well, come on. The Earth was only 10,000 years old then. Right. <laughs> Way back then. Uh,
0: Amy, did she dig out the entire creature and prepare and do all the prep work and all that? And and, and tell me a little bit about the scientists that then kind of maybe took the credit for this, for her discoveries.
2: Of course. So she did a lot of the work herself, especially in the early days, she might get um, the local stone cutters to help her cut the, the fossils out of the rock so she could transport them back to her shop. But she was doing all of the prep work. And she also took it upon herself to learn how to read and write. And then she also took it upon herself to start dissecting local sea animals to have a better understanding about how all these bones she were, she was finding worked and what kind of animals she was dealing with because she started to find some pretty wild stuff like squaloraja, uh, the ratfish. Yeah. And uh, and she figured out that you Wait, could still- Wait,
0: what's a
1: squaloraja?
0: <laughs> oh, tell, uh, one of the coolest ratfish ever.
1: Tell them. Wait, you mean is that contemporary or a fossil? Uh, It's a
2: fossil that was found by Mary Anning. She drew it, and it is one of the weirdest looking organisms ever. And when I told Ray about this back in 2014, he showed me immediately all of this artwork he'd done with squaloraja as like with hats and wooing women. So it's a type
1: of ratfish,
0: yeah? (laughs) Yeah. It's a type of ratfish, but it's a crazy looking ratfish. Chimera.
1: Yes. Quick aside. A squaloraja fossil looks kind of like a weird fish skeleton with some fins and a bird-like skull with a long beak and what seems to be tentacles or as though a spider was impaled on its head.
2: It is
0: weird. You can check
1: it out on maryanningsrevenge.com.
0: And I had known about Mary Anning's discovery of this beloved uh, ratfish, but it is the funkiest,
1: weirdest ratfish. You know, Ray has an obsession with ratfish. Oh,
0: she's.
2: Oh, oh, yes. The ratfish wranglers, of course.
0: Yeah, no, no. Got <laughs> one on my arm right there. There's wow. the tattoo yeah. show. Yeah, Ew, but... that must smell. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So uh, when you go out, you, vis- you dress up as Mary Anning, you go to schools yeah. and do you do a Mary Anning voice?
2: No, I tried to do a Mary Anning voice and I just sounded like Mrs. Doubtfire. And I determined that that was not like, oh, hello, children. Um. I shut it down. So we do, I do not try to talk in an accent. I mostly just try to do a lot of show and tell with really cool fossils to per, uh, just get kids excited. And then just a couple subtle things about, hey, she didn't always get credit for your finds. How do you feel about that? Do you want to get credit for your hard work? I bet you do. So let's make sure we always give credit to folks we work with.
0: Always do that. Tell me a little bit about the interactions that Mary had with scientists and how she ended up not being credited. So
2: she had a positive working relationship with quite a few scientists of her time who did support her and who did really... applaud her work and give her a lot of credit. However, a lot of other folks would travel. They were hearing about her discoveries. So they would um, these are mostly gentlemen type from London who have an interest in geology. And of course you're a gentleman. You don't have a whole lot of other time constraints. You can just go look at rocks for leisure. How nice that must have been. And they would go travel to um, Lyme Regis where she was living and they would essentially hire her to take Make a um to do a field trip sort of thing. And if they found anything, they would claim credit for it. And usually what she was paid was very little compared to what she was finding. And what also happened quite often is she did have a really significant find and she would try to get it to the um, Geological Society of London and they refused to let her join the society. And a lot of time her name was either erased from the donation record or from the collection record or misspelled like um, she was called Hanning a lot of the time, um, or literally it was just a dude's name instead. And uh, that was pretty common.
1: Toxic masculinity.
2: Well, she had some wonderful allies as well, who really made the world of difference for her ability to take care of herself and her family. So there's always good
1: with the bad. Did she have benefactors that supported her?
2: Uh, Eventually, she was able Because of some of her connections, uh, they were able to provide her family with a stipend, I think, through the Geological Society of London to help support her. She did become ill. She died of breast cancer. Uh, So there were many stages where she could not physically go out and collect anymore. And her family was very much dependent on that money.
1: Well, I hope these films really, really do her justice and give her the credit she deserves. Yeah. Amen.
0: Can one go see her fossils now at the British Museum or...
2: Yes, you totally can. I see pictures on the Instagram and I'm always jealous. I want to see her fossils so bad. I have not made it over the pond to see her work in the museums over there. But yes, um, the Natural uh, History Museum of London has an entire hall of her discoveries. And you can stand next to all the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaur that she discovered as well. And I really want to go to Lyme Regis. I'm trying to get on a pilgrimage to get back to the
1: homeland. I've got a question Back to two-toes or ungulates. <laughs> Was an entelodont? Ah. Were they two-toed? I am... Yes. I, Entelodonts. Okay. Entelodonts.
0: Entelodonts. <laughs> okay. What? Entelodonts. It's an entelodont? Okay an entelodont.
1: Okay. okay. Rob again, Dave. Okay. An entelodont is a... Hell pig, you coined that name. They were these amazing, massive, bone-crushing, their faces are so gnarly. Yeah. And they had these teeth. This is a carnivore or an opportunistic yes. feeder. Yes.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, uh, so, yes, and are also artiodactyls. Um, they're probably the most terrifying of the artiodactyls, if you were to ask me. Though I guess hippos are also technically artiodactyls, and they're also pretty scary. Describe
1: wait, what's it are, you, are what's a pterodactyl again?
2: <laughs> so an artiodactyl is a even-toed ungulates. So that's pretty much all of your ungulate things that we have around. The other group are called perissodactyls, and those are your odd-toed ungulates. And those are your living perissodactyls are horses, tapirs, and rhinos. That's it. Uh, whereas artiodactyls—I mean, literally most animals you see in a field are artiodactyls.
0: And speaking of gnarly, big, scary things, I know there's a lot. You've got all this really cool stuff on your Mary Anne's website. One of my favorite. Favorite areas, of course, is the awesome dead shit area, and I think we got your centiladons in there and the colliquethers. But you're also into bone crushing dogs, are you not?
2: I yeah. am. I have made the switch. I started at my position here as a paleontology collections manager at the museum back in November of 2017 and when I was being shown around the collections I was going to manage uh, they opened up this drawer and there was a tray without any foam in it and the most gorgeous complete dog skull I have ever seen in my entire life every tooth position is there and not worn at all and it's the adult dentition it's not even baby teeth it's not deciduous dentition and it uh the color of the enamel, the appetite has just been this black and caramel, so it's different colors in the teeth itself. It is just the most spectacular skull I'd ever seen. I immediately started asking what is this? And they didn't really have an answer. There were three different genera written down for the potential genus of this one skull. And I went, well can I work on this? Uh, I mean, it just, it jumped out at me and I immediately also gave it a proper cradle for collections and now it's actually on display this is a north american dog so this is actually dogs evolved in north america uh so we are the uh beginning of uh all dogs and actually cats i'm pretty sure too for that matter so this is and horses and and horses a lot of things and camels
1: that's right everything yeah everything's pretty much started in north america and then radiated out into the world
0: Is there a possibility that primates actually started out in North America?
1: So
2: there have been talk of that. However, most of the data really indicates that it was an Asian or African. Yeah, but it's actually probably Asia for primates. Uh, it is a little tricky. We have very, very old fossils. So primates come on the scene globally, like directly at 56 million years ago. Um, before that, we, we don't quite understand it also all climate related. So it's been hard to tease apart if the early, early stuff in Asia is older than the early, early stuff in Africa because they're all pretty old and it looks like they originated probably in probably in Asia somewhere, and then dispersed across into North America, probably from the Atlantic, though, from Europe. And there's a great paper that has a wonderful diagram of these Umamides, like jumping over the Atlantic Ocean. That brings me great joy. Uh, <laughs> so not So primates did not have their start here, but they did okay. die here. <laughs>
0: but but uh, they died here. Uh, well, we are the cradle of uh, dogdom yes. and uh, catdom and i believe there was actually a gap in the uh, the cat uh, uh history there there's the cat gap where they seem to disappear from fossil of north america but but dogs and then bear dogs too are these incredible beasties but what's the genus of the skull that you beheld you had you said you don't nobody knew what it was and where did it come from where was that fossil collected
2: so that fossil we do know that it is a borophagine, and borophagines are one of the two extinct subfamilies of canids. Uh, so that and the Hesperocyanines, the Western dogs, those are the original dogs that gave rise to borophagines as well as modern canines. How long ago? Uh borophagines come onto the scene around 36 million years ago I want to say and the Hesperosyanines are just a little bit before that and the borophagines that name literally means bone crushing dog uh, they're probably the most metal of all of the fossil mammals I took the skull to the hospital to be CT scanned so I could look at 3D data and uh, the nurses they, like we had a triceratops and a T-Rex with us and they didn't care they were just enthralled with this really cool looking dog skull and i was like yeah it's about eight to ten actually i have a cast of it over there but i guess that doesn't german
1: shepherd size uh
2: no we're talking smaller than that we're talking like about the size of a female husky for this one um, they did get much larger. So the some of the bone crushing dogs are more hyper carnivorous than the others. Some were better adapted for crushing bones than the one I'm working on, actually. Mine is like at the beginning of that trajectory, whereas the later ones, like Aluridon, um, you see really inflated teeth like what we see in hyenas, and uh that they would have and we've also studied their fossil poop to know that they were in fact eating. Bone, uh, my co-author Xiaoming Wayne. His talk for SVP was the proof is in the pooping, and it was all about uh that borophagine copper light, our fossil poop, which also has a Marianne connection, but we'll go to that later. Uh so um how big this one is probably about the size of a female husky. We also have a much smaller one in collections that I want to work on. I even have some post crania, so not just teeth and skull. Uh, So we have about six specimens that have never been formally described, never been added to the literature. So we are missing that information when we talk about North American mammal evolution.
1: You have some work to do then. Yes, yes, I do. Um, And when did they disappear from North America?
2: Uh, Borophagines go extinct about 2.5 million years ago, likely due to competition with modern canines.
1: Didn't Native Americans have dogs?
2: Uh, Humans... Uh, again, I'm not as great with modern things. They would have
1: brought them with them across the Bering land bridge.
2: Yes. That is the idea is that the dogs would have dispersed by, we're talking two to five million years ago, going across Beringia, going into Asia and Africa. Um, that's where we're seeing modern dogs uh, and, and human stories really taking shape i do not know the timing i also i'm not as well versed on the modern and the human connection uh but then they probably did bring them back with them yes because the modern the other dogs had gone extinct
0: that's weird to think that they maybe went extinct in north america and then they came back is that what you're
2: oh like modern dogs
0: well yeah like modern dogs here boy
2: So modern dogs, no, they also evolved here. Um, I don't study canines necessarily, uh, which would be fascinating. I'd love to look at like the the origin of wolves uh, would be very fascinating from a
1: fossil standpoint, but I'm not quite sure. Well, horses became extinct here. Then were reintroduced with the Spaniards.
2: Yes, and there's actually some evidence that, depending on your perspective, how much validity you give it, that perhaps horses never did go extinct here. Because um, I've been quite hearing that as well, yes. yes. There's quite a bit there's of... pushback. Yes, there's quite a bit of oh. um, Native American oral tradition that actually indicates that horses never really went fully extinct here.
1: Amy, what is the coolest fossil that you, you must at night roam the halls of the collections at your museum, hearing the stories and the wind blowing through all those jaws. What is the coolest fossil you've ever seen?
2: The coolest fossil. I mean, I guess that kind of depends on what day it is because every day <laughs> I feel like a different fossil is the coolest fossil uh, I, of course, have to say my, the bone crushing dog skull. I've never been so enamored by a single specimen before. It really is quite tantalizing. I just, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, and then at the museum, of course, there are just Phenomenal fossils. I feel very fortunate that I get to work with um, the fossil that's known as B. Rex. It's a pretty famous T. Rex specimen that was discovered in the year 2000 by Bob Harmon, who recently retired from Museum of the Rockies. So that's why it's called B. Rex. Uh, But the discovery story of that fossil is pretty incredible. Bob is just a hardy guy, and how he found this fossil is crazy. And then the science that has come out of that specimen has been some of the oldest evidence of soft tissue in dinosaurs. And that's out of this 67 million year old um, fossil
1: Tyrannosaurus rex. Is that the one that is purported to have the bone, um the plasma in the bone?
2: Yes, that's in the femur. When they excavated this dinosaur, they made the jacket too large and the helicopter couldn't carry it out from the site. So they cut the jacket in half and they cut through the femur. And uh, Mary Schweitzer, who I think at the time was a Ph.D. student, now is a a doctor at North Carolina State uh, University. And she took the opportunity to sample the inside because her work needs to be, it cannot be contaminated by any glues or Vinax and adhesives. It needs to be raw bone fresh fresh bone and so that opportunity actually gave her this chance to sample the fresh bone and that's when she there's video footage of her looking at it under the microscope and you can see her pushing against this cell that is actually having it's kind of pliable it has still got some organic original cellular material in there and you know
1: what i don't see why it couldn't be possible oh yeah right the right preservation. She's faced a lot of uh, pushback. There's a lot of controversy.
2: Yes, but there are even more papers out right now with other, with soft tissue being reported from dinosaurs. So I think she is right on the money.
0: Hey Amy, so Dave was asking about the coolest fossil that you've ever seen, but is there a coolest fossil moment for you? Uh, You like to go out in the field and look for fossils was there a was there a life changing fossil for you? you 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 found something and it changed the course of your life?
2: Honestly, I always felt like I wasn't much of a finder as a kid. I don't think I had quite the uh patience for searching as I do later. My favorite fossil discovery has got to be. I was on, I was early in my graduate school experience, I was on a field trip through the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology in the Bridger Formation, the Eocene Bridger Formation of Wyoming, really famous, beautiful formation, and we were at the type locality of this type of Eocene primate called Notharctus, which would have looked a lot like a lemur, a modern lemur. And I found uh, half of a lower jaw uh, with the teeth, again, very pristine, unworn teeth. And my advisor was with me and I started crying on the outcrop and he was just really freaked out by his graduate student who was covered in mud from looking for this fossils and like just crying while smiling hysterically. And that one has gotta be, I mean, to, to find a primate alone is so rare to find any primate material. And I've been fortunate to find a few other primate teeth. Ethan since then too, Uh, but to find it at the type locality where it was originally found and from with the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, it just was this beautiful full picture moment. Wow,
0: Wow, that's a really cool moment. Wow, yeah. Thank you. It's at the Denver
2: Museum, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's
0: where that... You didn't get to keep that and put that in your pocket, did you, right?
2: No, and we can talk about why I would never do that. Why would
0: you not do that? You know, I mean, say, hey, I'll take that and I'll put it on the mantle, but it goes into an important public collection, right?
2: I see myself as a steward. I do not see myself as a collector. I want to help preserve and protect this scientific data so that it is available for all sorts of studies down the road. We don't know what sort of uh, advancements we're going to have in science. And I think it belongs to everyone and not just me and the few people who would see it on my bookshelf occasionally. And if it can help scientific research, then that is uh, so much more important than any display or monetary value it
1: might have. And what do you think about all the private collectors that are hiding some of the most beautiful fossils on the planet in their living rooms that no one gets to see?
2: That definitely makes me a little bit grumpy. Uh, You know, if folks are following the law, okay, go for it. However, very often you can walk a very, very thin line with that sort of collecting because of customs and bringing things in from overseas and things get very... um, just very hairy with the legality of all that. And I just, it comes back to the ethics for me. I would much prefer taking um, a, my family to a museum to see fossils than trying to get Leo DiCaprio to open up his mansion for me.
1: but when am I have my fossil?
2: <laughs> <laughs> or Nick Cage. Nick Cage, I know you have fossils.
0: You should donate them to a museum. <laughs> oh, oh, there's a shout out. You, you, you throw throwing some shade. Yeah, I like that. <laughs>
2: Bring back our American treasures.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sorry, nas- national treasure. I messed national it up. Treasure. I didn't oh, there say you it go. right. Yeah, that's right, our <laughs> national treasure. Um, before I ask a very important question, you got to do something that uh, was a pivotal point in my life by reading about it. When I read Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey, that turned me on to the magic of the Four Corners region, the the wind blowing through a juniper tree, the sunsets the deep time, you got to be a park ranger at Arches National Monument where Edward Abbey got the inspiration to write Desert Solitaire.
2: I have, and I was, and I have been on the site where his trailer used to sit, and I looked around for old pull tabs and bullets mm-hmm. and all sorts of stuff to see if there's anything beer left. Cans. Yeah, beer cans, exactly. Mostly it's probably just beer cans. Uh, I love Desert Solitaire. I I was, uh, my, my folks lived in Utah for many, many years. And so my dad instilled a love of Edward Abbey and myself and my brother. So I was obsessed with that. I read the monkey wrench gang in high school, but I didn't tell him. I was trying to like, he didn't, my dad didn't think it was, uh, I was old enough to read it. And then I was like, dad, what's the maze? How do you get lost in the maze? What? And then he was like, did you read, did you read the monkey wrench gang? And I was like, yeah, I did. I read it. (laughs)
1: Quick aside, The Maze is an amazing labyrinth of canyons in Utah's Canyonlands National Park. And if you haven't read Edward Abbey, you should. He's an American author and essayist noted for his advocacy of environmental issues and anarchist political views. He's also a damn good read.
2: And then I had um when I was coming out of high school, I volunteered with the Student Conservation Association, which works with AmeriCorps to provide educational opportunities for students and postgrads. And so I took a three-month internship at Arches National Park in the summer of 2010. And then I came back as a full ranger for six months the following year. And it's still, to this day, love you, Museum of the Rockies, still to this day, probably my favorite job I've ever had. It was really, really absolutely incredible to be able to interact with people in the resource itself. I used to read people, Edward Abbey, on my Fiery Furnace tours. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, it was a joy. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: That's, wow. that's really cool. You know, I, I, got, uh, I had the privilege of hanging out with your father one night. He came to a Ratfish Wrangler concert, and he's one cool guy.
2: <laughs> he so. is. He's a very cool guy. And I can thank him for buying me the Cruising the Fossil Freeway poster when I was 14 years old that is hanging in my office oh. right now but has been hanging on my wall for 14 years
1: now. Wow. Well, you know what? It looks like uh, Ray, you're a fan of Amy, and Amy, you're a fan of Ray. And suddenly I'm
0: feeling very, very old, very old.
1: Amy, we ask this of every guest, and that is science is under attack. Facts are under attack. There's a lot of propaganda out there that is challenging scientific data. You, as a paleontologist, how can we share the idea and notion that science is real, science is based on data, and that someone's opinion can't be challenged by scientific data?
2: Oh, yeah. Let me just solve all of those problems right now for you. Um, I would have to say that as uh, someone who now identifies as a science communicator as well as a paleontologist, that it really is our duty as science communicators to demystify a lot of what happens in science to make it more approachable and therefore less of a gatekeeping tool. And um, I think that's going to help facilitate, oh, well, I had this great interaction with the scientist, so maybe I'm going to give that a little more thought before just dismissing it with those evil ivory tower scientist types. I've created a monster. So I think that means it's very important that we as scientists share our process, that we as scientists make it our responsibility to communicate it in a way that is understandable to an everyday audience, and also that maybe challenges the stereotypical faces that we normally consider scientists to make it a lot more approachable and make someone growing up who doesn't necessarily look like Indiana Jones feel like they have an opportunity to become a paleontologist. Ironically, he, does, he was not a paleontologist, but that's a look in our field. So I'm just addressing that. I think that's really important, too, that we need to have more role models that really um, challenge that face of paleontology that we always think of as, you know, Alan Grant from Jurassic Park. Understand that that limits little kids who don't look like that from thinking they can be scientists, too, or listening to scientists, too.
0: That's great. You're going to a lot of schools and doing a lot of outreach and you realize that you yourself are a role model now.
2: I have um, uh, accepted this and I have stopped using curse words in my hashtags on Instagram Boosh. because I recognize that I need to be family friendly. So don't go back too, too far. But it's been a long time. But I have accepted that I am I have an audience of uh, a lot of kids and a lot of families. And I get a lot of messages about we as a family do this with your work or got inspired by your work or found this rock because of your work. And that definitely makes me think a little bit more about going back to being a steward for these resources and just doing my best to get folks excited about them and not necessarily telling them, no, that's not right. Or no, that you're wrong. You're hypo I don't want to, I'd rather start a conversation than create really firm boundaries, I guess
0: get them intrigued a little bit i'm admittedly very jealous of your instagram following you have a huge following and it's it's great you are an influencer
2: i am yeah i think i'm technically a macro influencer based on what the interwebs have told me um
1: what is your instagram
2: um my instagram handle is the same as the blog we talked about it's mary annings revenge Um, Megan has the Twitter handle, Mary's Revenge, so you can follow us on two different social media platforms.
1: It's great. You're always posing with the most amazing fossils, and it's like, oh my... God, T-Rex heads and skulls and oh man, it's Thank just Thank you awesome. and I
2: want to say that there is a reason why I'm posing in the photos. I want to transport people. I want them to be able to envision themselves in these places to help them be inspired to continue to pursue a, either a career or a hobby or an interest in science. I want them to be able to
1: visualize that. You do that but you also are a fantastic gauge of size
2: actually i'm like fairly tall so i think people are like that's not that big and i'm like i'm just six foot tall so just sorry guys oh but these Uh,
1: these skeletons are massive when you stand next to them so it's awesome
2: yes yes no it is great and i sometimes ask my more petite friends to come and pose in photos so that the skulls look even bigger (laughs) (laughs) but
1: it is a good scale bar
2: human scale bar
1: one last question What would you like to do to get more women in science?
2: I think part of what I want to do is actually change the dialogue and ask, why aren't we supporting the women who are already in science? We see quite a bit of interest, equal interest, you could say, between men and women in the geosciences and paleontology through school and even at the undergraduate level. Enrollment is equal. It's 50-50. Where we see the leaky pipe happening is after that. When you go into graduate school, there's less women. When you get hired to, if you get a PhD and you want to become an assistant professor, there's less women. You want to become a tenured professor, there's way less women. So it's not necessarily about we need more women getting interested in science. We need the people in power to be supporting the women who are already here and who are already doing this and bring some awareness to the fact that this leaky pipeline occurs. And there is no inherent difference between men and women in terms of interest in paleontology. We are all human beings that are fascinated by our natural world, and that should be celebrated. We need to instead be curious about why we are not seeing women in these higher levels in paleontology. Or at conferences, when you hear, look at how many male versus female speakers. Um, If you look at authorship on paleontology papers, how many papers are just all men? Um, There's really no excuse for that anymore. And social media is a part of that. You are able to connect with a huge array of paleontologists who are very talented and who probably represent a more diverse viewpoint than just your buddies and you do. So maybe we need to try a little bit harder to diversify with our own interests.
0: Amen, Amy. Uh, that's, that's really yeah, well put. I have one last question. Yes. If you were able to time travel, if you were able to get in the old time machine and go back to any age that you wanted to, where would you go? When would you go?
2: where oh where is hard <laughs> and when when is easy that when, is
0: when 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 is
2: when. when is middle like the Uintan land mammal age which is um a middle eocene so um that and I'd probably want to go uh we're talking about like 43 million years ago I would either go to Southern California, West Texas, or Utah and Wyoming, because that's where I find the primate fossils. They obviously would have been more widespread than that, but I know for sure they would have been there. So it wouldn't take any chances. Um, and probably something like Wyoming, where we see this great diversity in Eocene primates and I, and all sorts of other mammals. So many other mammals start in the Eocene and they, the ones that we have familiar representation of today got their start in the Eocene. And I would just be so thrilled to see the earliest weird, derpy little horse and the saddest, <laughs> derpy, derpy little oreodont. You know, that would bring me much joy.
0: So no dinosaurs. You want to go to the age of mammals. That's really cool.
1: Which is the Cenozoic, right?
2: In the Cenozoic, yes. I- and
1: how many periods in the Cenozoic? Or the Cenozoic is an era, correct? Or an epoch?
2: Epoch. Yes. Epic? <laughs> no, it's the, the Cenozoic- Eocene Epoch. So it's the Cenozoic era. And then you have the Paleocene, the Eocene, the Eocene, the Oligocene, Miocene, Pliocene, Pleistocene, Holocene. And then you can debate on the Anthropocene if you're into that.
1: We're in the Anthroplastic
2: scene. Yeah, you some folks would say that I'm not convinced yet. Um but uh you know, I'm cool with no, it. No, I
1: said Anthroplastic scene.
2: That's funny. That's how we'll find this. No, it's sad. I guess I have such a deep time perspective that I I've been I was challenged by a lot of ideas like that in graduate school with um Chris Bell, an excellent professor of paleontology, who was he really questioned us what what is actually going to preserve for this time period. And, you know, when we think about deep time the way that we do in the K the KPG boundary, for goodness sakes, like this huge catastrophic ordeal. And it's this little, 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 boop. So I do question like in deep, deep time. In case you forgot like
1: I did, the K-T boundary, now called the K-P-G boundary, marks the end of the Cretaceous, the age of the dinosaurs, the last period of the Mesozoic era, and marks the beginning of the Paleogene period, the age of mammals, which is the first period of the Cenozoic era. Sound familiar? It's about 66 million years ago and it marks the the point when the dinosaurs just bit it.
2: What record will we truly have? Obviously, in human time, yes, we'll have quite, it's very effective to talk about the anthropoplastic scene um, in first yeah, human a scale. A place
1: like New York City, uh, let's say it gets covered by a, a, a coastal mountain range that's 10,000 or 20,000 feet high. Where's that coming from? Oh, who knows? Maybe the Atlantic Ridge. No, oh,
2: that's
0: a spreading
1: center. That's okay. not how. <laughs> See, she's got you, Dave. Okay, what I'm saying <laughs> is, let's say it gets buried by whatever uh, in 20,000 feet of sedimentary rock or who knows what. And 100 million years later, New York will still be there. It'll be compacted, but it'll be there.
2: I, I'll be dead. So that's, <laughs> that's all fine with me. Uh, but I am definitely uh, a Cenozoic girl. I grew up with Oregon. Oregon has an incredible Cenozoic mammal record. And even being at Museum of the Rockies surrounded by dinosaurs all the time, I still prefer studying and honestly discussing mammals for that matter, too. I just think they are. I also love my pets. So I guess there's that human connection, too, versus I love to eat chicken. So I'm not, like, all that excited (laughs) about T-Rex, maybe. so.
0: Do you have a dog, Amy? Do you have a dog or two?
2: I have a dog, her name is Freya, she's a husky, and she gets a little freaked out when I put the cast of the Borophagine skull next to her head, because she does not like that. Um, And I guess that's a little creepy on my part. And then uh, we have a cat named Moho, named after the Mohorokovic layer of geophysics. Anyway, it's a nerdy household, for sure.
1: You are my uh, scientist, feminist hero.
2: Yay! Steminist! You can call me a STEMinist. (laughs)
1: That's great. That's great. And it's an honor and a pleasure talking to you.
2: Oh, you as well. This is so fun. I'm very, I was just beyond tickled that I got that email from you, Ray. So thank you for thinking of me. And I do, I just, I was just rereading our interview from 2014 and just really appreciating your advice then and how much I still appreciate it and just admire what you have done in paleontology.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And good luck uh, at uh, the Museum of the Rockies. And, you know, Dave and I want to get out there and look through that collection with you sometime.
1: Yes. Yes. Will you let us in?
2: Of course. I'll let you touch the T-Rex teeth for sure. Oh, Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Wait a minute.
1: Kirk Johnson let me touch one in Denver.
2: Beat me to it. But Kirk (laughs) was at the museum not that long ago, so y'all got to catch up. Yeah. All right. All right. Oh, thank you Thanks, okay. Amy. Bye.
0: All
1: right. That was great.
0: That was great. What'd you think? She's just fun, goofy, and very inspirational. She is a role model for all yeah. kinds of people. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I uh, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be able to omomimid, omomimid, omomimid,
0: omomimid,
1: right, the family of omomayens, um, like, um, um, yeah, we're going to defer to her. Yeah, which uh, are those uh, North American mammals.
0: North American primates.
1: North American primates, yeah. Yes. But wait a minute. I thought we're I thought we primates.
0: We are primates, Dave. Uh, some of us more than others.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. You're hairier than me. And aren't there... Uh... That hurt. I'm looking forward to talking to uh, some more scientists. You got some numbers and stuff? You know some people out there?
0: I know some other people. I know some other people. And also I know some artist types that we might want to talk to. Some uh, fellow paleo artist geeks. Fellow paleo like nerds, you. much like myself.
1: Are you a paleo nerd?
0: I am a paleo nerd,
1: Dave. I admit it. I'm a paleo nerd, too. When she was describing those T-Rex teeth, oh, my God, I was just sitting in my seat freaking.
0: And I like how she pointed out uh, paleo nerddom is not just for the boys, is it?
1: No, no. It's for, uh, it's all, for all of us. us. That's right. It's for all of us. Amen. Amen. Oh, don't say that.
0: We're scientific.
1: Uh, Ray, I will talk to you later. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to
2: Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonards.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleo nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm a-